Good morning. It's my honor to introduce our scripture reader this morning, Miss Kaylee Witters. She's a student uh, in our student ministries department. She's a senior this year. She plays keyboard in the fusion band, and she volunteers in the nursery. Thanks, Kaylee. Please turn in your Bibles or Bible apps to Hebrews 4, 14 through 16. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the word of the, God. This is the, word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thanks, Kaylee. I always wondered what it would be like if I knew that I was going to go through severe persecution. How would I handle that? How would I handle it if I knew that God was going to put me on a path and go through a very difficult time for what I believed? Would I bend? Would I crack? Would I break? And I'm guessing that some of you have probably imagined what that would be like as well. I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Ignatius. He was the pastor at a church in Antioch. He lived about 1,900 years ago. Ultimately, he was arrested, and on his way to Rome to receive his sentence, he wrote a letter to a few churches. One of the letters that he wrote was to a church in Rome. Knowing that he was going to be sentenced, knowing what that was going to entail, this is what he wrote to that church in Rome. He said, may I enjoy the wild beasts that are prepared for me. I pray that they would be found eager to rush at me, and I will also entice them to devour, to devour me speedily and not deal with me as some whom out of fear they have not touched. If they are, willing, if they are unwilling to assail me, I will compel them to do so. Pardon me, I know what is to my benefit. Now I begin to be a disciple. Let no one of things visible or invisible prevent me from attaining to Jesus Christ. Let fire and the cross, let wild beasts, let tearings, breakings, and dislocation of bones, let cutting off of limbs, let shatterings of the whole body, and let all the evil torments of the devil come upon me. Only let me become like Jesus Christ. Ignatius was not uncommon at that time. There was another uh, church father by the name of Polycarp. When he knew that he was going to be burned at the stake, he said, thank you, Father, for letting me participate in the same sufferings of Jesus Christ. Now, I read that. I, I mean, I look at the words on the page, and I can't, think, I can't help but to think myself, how in the world do you face the flames, you face the wild animals with this kind of faith? I, I mean, frankly, I wake up in the morning wondering how I'm going to face today, let alone have a faith that can endure this kind of difficulty. And whether it be poverty, whether it be wild animals, they had an enduring kind of faith. 
a faith that can endure whatever comes its way. This is a faith that can lie in a hospital bed, given a bad diagnosis. This is a faith that can pursue God, even in the midst of financial difficulty, with an enjoyable endurance of what's going on around it. And I look at what these men were able to do, and I want to be able to have the kind of faith that they have, because I know what kind of fruits that kind of faith can produce. We're continuing in a series today about the gospel. And as you saw, it's about a person named Jesus Christ. The series is called Hopeful. And we're talking about all the truths that surround the gospel and the person of Jesus Christ. And this morning we're going to continue that series. We're going to be in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 4. And what we're going to talk about, about is how to attain a faith that can endure all the woes, that can endure any coming oppression and thrive. And you heard the text earlier, and this morning we're going to focus on two things, two things to pursue that can move us towards this kind of a faith. Both of them found in these three verses in Hebrews chapter 4. The first thing that we see is trust in a sympathetic Savior. That's number one. First of all, it's trust in a sympathetic Savior. I want to talk a little bit about some background of what's going on uh, here in the book of Hebrews. You see, Hebrews chapter 10 tells us that the people there in this church are being persecuted. And the persecution is, is not terribly severe yet. In Hebrews chapter 12, it's going to say that they've not yet been persecuted to the point of shedding blood. But the author is speaking to them, and he knows they've got a real problem. The problem is they seem to have a touch of sagging faith. They're Faith seems to be getting a little bit weary. Now, this is a house church. I mean, let's, let's don't think about some big building packed full of, of believers like we have here. We're talking about something maybe 30 to 40 people going to church in a house. And he's warned them prior to this that if they were to renounce their faith, there will be judgment for that. Not everyone in the early church was like Ignatius and Polycarp. Some did lie because they were afraid of what being a Christian might bring them. Now what's clear to the author and what he's making clear to the Hebrews is that the mark of a true believer is an enduring faith, a faith that's going to last you throughout your lifetime, <clears throat> particularly in the face of opposition and persecution. So the goal of the author is to encourage this group of Christians to grow on to maturity in the faith because he sees what's going on around him. So that's the background to this book. That's what we're getting into today. So here we enter the text, Hebrews chapter 4, and we see a very clear command in verse 14. It says, Therefore, since we have a high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. Now, we have an appeal here to the Old Testament. Now, that makes sense because he's speaking to these Jewish Christians, the Hebrews. They would have been very familiar with the Old Testament, but it's kind of problematic for us in the sense we don't really have a context for a high priest. Now, if you grew up in church, uh, maybe you saw a flannel graph of something of a high priest. He probably looks something uh, like what you'll see on the screen, a guy that wore an, an ephod and kind of a hat with robes. Uh, a high priest may conjure up images in your mind of a 
guy with a long beard, sort of a Gandalf, Dumbledore-looking guy. But the main function of the high priest was to represent the people before God. He could enter into the holy place, the most holy place, the holy of holies inside the temple. He could pass through a veil. He was the only one that could do this. So this was a special privilege that he had. And he could enter right into the part of the temple there that had the presence of God. There's where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where they held the presence of God to be. That's where God dwelt in a place like he did no other on earth. And only the high priest could go in there. So the common man didn't have access to God like the high priest did. So for the Hebrews, however, Jesus has a high priesthood that represents access for the common man. See, when Jesus passed through the heavens, that's, that's a reference to his ascension. We see it in Acts chapter 1. Not only did he just rise up into heaven, but he blazed the trail for us to have full access to the presence of God like it had never been before. That's why the veil was ripped, because now man can access God like he never was before. All the obstacles were removed, so now man has free access to God. So we see this. Um, we see that happen in the book of Acts. We see the ascension, and now we know the trail has been blazed. Jesus is alive with God right now, sitting in his right hand, fully alive. That separates him from the other high priests as well. No other high priest is alive like Jesus Christ is in the presence of God right now. So verse 15, we go on. And we have more reasons to which we are to hold on to Christ. And it says in verse 15 of Hebrews chapter 4, For we do not have a high priest incapable of sympathizing with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin. So we've got more reasons now as to why we should hold fast to this confession that, that Jesus is Lord. And here it states because we don't have a high priest who's incapable of sympathizing with us. In other words, Jesus knows what it's like to be one of us. And this verse describes Christ as having been tempted in every way just as we are. Now, I know, you're going to hear that and you're going to think, no, well, that's not possible, Okay. Because you see, from time to time, I'm tempted to do things using today's technology, you know. You're tempted to uh, pick up your phone or your iPad and look at something you're not supposed to. You're tempted, maybe you've been tempted to shoot somebody. I mean, Jesus could have been tempted to shoot somebody because there weren't any guns at the time. So how was it he was tempted in every way? Well, yeah, the tools of sin may have changed, but the sins themselves have not. And I would submit to you that yes... Jesus was tempted in every way that you and I were. Now, first of all, uh, we need to step into his shoes to get some kind of idea of, of what this was like. And understand, he was 100% man, 100% God. Matt did a good job of explaining this last week. But Jesus, when he was born, and he was held there by Mary, and he was a helpless baby, bloody, messy, he was still 100% God, the creator of the universe. Whenever he was walking on water, when he was raising someone from the dead, when he was changing water into wine, he was still 100% man. 
when he was sleeping and eating and doing all the things that we have to do. He was still 100% God, both all the time. So it was in his humanity that he was tempted, but 100% God and 100% man. I'll never forget a Christmas card that I saw one time. It had some pictures of uh, Hitler and Mussolini and Napoleon. And the caption was, Many men wanted to become God, but only one God wanted to become man. And that's the Jesus that we have. He was tempted in his humanity. And his deity could have even made things more difficult. Think about this. Being God, he knew, he knew everything. He knew how he was going to die. He knew the measure of pain he was going to encounter. And yet he still never lied about who he was. And he fully accepted everything that was going to be coming to him. He entered a wealthy man's house named Zacchaeus and he never coveted what Zacchaeus had. Mary cried tears on his feet and wiped them with her hair, and yet he never had a lustful thought. He could silence all his accusers, and yet he never gloated. When the disciples fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane, he never had any self-pity. He never pouted. He was wrongly accused, and he never took revenge. He did all these things, and he remained sinless. Fifty years ago, C.S. Lewis imagined someone having a problem with this idea of the sinlessness of Jesus Christ. And he wrote a response to that objection. In other words, because he didn't sin, maybe he wasn't really tempted. And and this is what C.S. Lewis said. There's a silly idea that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it really is. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would be like having, having endured it an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is also the only man who knows to the full what temptation means, the only complete realist. You don't know how strong an enemy is unless you defeat the enemy. That's when you know the extent of their strength. So Jesus can sympathize with us in our pain. He can sympathize with us in our dying because he experienced excruciating pain all the way to his own death. And he can sympathize with us when we're tempted because he was tempted as well. So the text says he was tempted in every way and was without sin. And I want to talk about sin for just a moment. It comes from this Greek word, hamarti. I always thought that was kind of a pretty word, but it is just such an ugly thing. And it literally means to miss the mark. Sin, sin means missing the mark. So imagine if you were an archer, you, you shoot at a target, you miss the target, inevitably you end up hitting something that you did not intend. And that's the way it is with sin. You not only don't do the good you should have, you inadvertently end up doing the very thing you did not want to do. Something contrary to the character of God. That's what sin is. Jesus in every thought, in every word, and in every deed was without sin. 
And all those things, his thoughts, his words, his deeds, they were like, they were like radar-guided missiles that always hit the exact target that he intended with the exact intensity that he desired. So he did those things without sin. Had any sin been committed by Christ, he would not have been, he could not have been our Savior. He had to be sinless. He had to be without blemish. Imagine for a minute two men, both guilty of murder, standing in a courtroom. And the two men are standing there, and, and the judge is, is pronouncing this sentence. He pronounces it. He said, you both get a life sentence. One man feels bad for the other man. He says, well, I'll tell you what, I don't think he can handle prison like I do. Just go ahead and give his sentence to me. Now, if this is a good judge, he's going to chuckle to himself. He's going to say, well, you can't take his sentence. You can't serve two life sentences, and you're just as guilty as he is. God, as a good judge, looked down, and the only way for sins to be atoned for was for somebody to show up and pay the sacrifice who hadn't committed any sins. And that's where Jesus comes in. Only Christ could have been this sacrifice for us. He's the only one who hadn't committed any sins. So this is our sympathetic Savior. He's the reason that we hold firmly to this confession, that Jesus Christ is Lord and that he'll save us from our sin if we trust him. So bound up in this idea of holding fast to a confession is trust. And trust isn't easy. And one of my favorite stories about trust uh, pertains to this guy by the name of Blondin. There was a tightrope walker. He lived in France, named Blondin. P.T. Barnum discovered this guy back in 1858, and he brought him over to the United States. And he said, look, I want you to spend your summer at Niagara Falls entertaining all the people who, who come there. So he does this. And he's an entertainer, and he will go out on that tightrope, and sometimes he would make omelets, sometimes he would walk backwards, sometimes he would ride a bike back and forth across this tightrope. And one day he got a wheelbarrow. And he got that wheelbarrow at one end and he looked at the crowd and said, do you think I can get this wheelbarrow across? And they all screamed, yeah, yeah, we know you can do that. He said, okay. So he, he pushes the wheelbarrow across, he gets to the other side, everybody's cheering. And then he looks at the crowd and said, do you think I can get this wheelbarrow back across with somebody in the wheelbarrow? And they all start screaming, yeah, you could do that. Well, who would like to volunteer? Crickets. Nobody was going to volunteer to get into that wheelbarrow. Now you've got to ask yourself, how much did they really believe he could do this? Belief, trust. It's not just a mental ascent of something. It's about fully putting your trust in with someone or something. And that's not an easy thing to do. We can't enjoy an enduring faith by trusting in our sympathetic Savior, but this is not an easy thing to do. If it were an easy thing to do, the writer of Hebrews would not need to have written this letter to this group of people at this time. Trust has its enemies. Sometimes we trust in our resources. We trust in our abilities. Sometimes fear can be an enemy of trust. Fear of public opinion, fear of broken relationships, fear of what would happen if so-and-so found out how dearly I believe this. 
So it's hard. And to carry on such a commitment of your life is going to be hard. As a matter of fact, it's going to demand resources that naturally you and I don't have. And that's where we get to this second part. Our second point is found in verse 16. And that is to approach God with boldness. We're talking about approaching God with with boldness. So because we have such a sympathetic high priest who is now sitting at the right hand of the Father, we can approach God the Father with boldness. And please look at verse 16 in chapter 4. It says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So now we have this second command given on how to go about approaching God for two things that we desperately, and I mean you can double underline desperately need, grace and mercy. So first let's talk about these two things we need, and then we'll talk about how to get those two things. And the first is grace. Grace is getting what we don't deserve. Grace is getting what we don't deserve, which is pretty much everything in life. Um, The scriptures tell us that we've been adopted by God. We're his children. It's grace that gives us hope that we'll spend all eternity with Christ. So we've got grace for the big things. And then we've got grace for little things in life. Things like enjoying a movie, enjoying music, enjoying time with friends. This is all grace. And it's all necessary. Please don't think of grace as a nice to have. Think of it more like oxygen. Think about it as something we depend on. Philip Yancey said this about grace. He said, grace is everywhere, like lenses that go unnoticed because you're looking through them. So grace is one of these two things that we desperately need to get through this Christian life. And by the way, anytime you see grace, typically in the scriptures, when you see grace, you'll almost always see mercy right beside it. So if grace is getting what we don't deserve, mercy is not getting what we do deserve. Mercy is not getting what we do deserve. We are equally dependent upon both. Mercy is Jesus Christ taking the punishment that we deserved. Mercy is accepting the forgiveness that is offered to us. And essentially, mercy is relief from something. Chuck Swindoll uh, put it this way. He said, when we are relieved of physical pain, we breathe easier. Hope returns as pain departs. When a relationship is strained and we finally work things out, that sense of relief is better than anything money can buy. When we finally crawl out from under the load of a heavy financial debt, nothing can compare to that sweet relief. God calls this divine gift of relief mercy. That's right, mercy. It's a twin alongside grace. See, I need grace to endure the things that God chooses to bring into my life. Things that God brings in because I do need to be made into someone else. I'm looking forward, as you heard Ignatius say, nothing will keep me from becoming like Christ. But I need grace in order to get there. Sometimes God gives us mercy. He takes away that thing for which we need grace. But at times you need both, grace and mercy. And it's something that we need to lean on. And as Christians, 
We are going to depend on these things to continue in the faith. We need it today. And we're also told how to get it. And the text says there to approach the throne of grace with confidence. So now what does that mean? There's this Greek word for confidence. It's parousia. And it was often used to describe Greeks who were having a conversation with each other because they enjoyed freedom of speech. So they could speak very boldly with each other. They could speak very frankly with each other. And that's how it says we are to approach God with a bold frankness, speaking freely to him. Now that means that, um, that rather doesn't mean that we're not humble when we approach God. We're still the servant speaking to the master. But there's a frankness, there's a boldness that can be involved in that conversation of prayer. But always in humility, but at the same time not mealy-mouthed either. And I believe there's three ingredients to prayers like this. First, speak your belief. Speak your belief. Speak to God about the things that you believe to be true about him. And you see this all through Old Testament prayers. You see um, these prophets saying, God, you are holy, you are mighty. God, I believe in you. I believe you're bigger than my problems. I believe you're listening to me right now. It's important to speak those things that we believe to be true about God. And then secondly, be specific. Make your requests known to God. God, help me deal with so-and-so. God, give me the words to speak. God, I need your wisdom to face this situation. I need your grace and mercy. I'm not sure how I'm going to get through this. But be specific. And then finally, look back at answered prayers. Look back on your previous prayers. See where God has worked in the past to give you the confidence that, yes, he's listening. And if you struggle to find your own prayers, go to the scriptures and look at their prayers that were answered. It's all through there, the faithfulness of God. The fact is we need this. Because we have a great high priest, the throne of God is a throne of grace. And the help we need comes from that throne. And it's available for whenever we need it. It's not deserved help. This is gracious help. So we can enjoy an enduring faith by trusting in our sympathetic Savior and approaching God boldly. And I'd like to close uh, with a picture of what this kind of faith looks like. And I, I want to introduce you to a man by the name of Thomas Hawkes. Now, Thomas Hawkes lived about the time, of, uh, the time of the Reformation, 1500s. He was a Protestant. He was actually a page in King Edward's court. Now, King Edward was sympathetic to Protestant Christians. But when he died, his sister, Queen of Mary, took the throne. And she was not sympathetic to Protestants. And people were going to pay for this. So Thomas Hawkes, when he had a child, he decided that that child was not going to be baptized into the Catholic faith. When his enemies found out about that, they made it known to the powers that be, and then Thomas Hawkes was summoned to the bishop in London. He was told to recant. He said, I can't do that. So he was put in prison, and he was sentenced to death. He was going to be burned. While he was in prison, some friends came to him, 
and said, listen, many of us are going to be facing this same fate. Whenever you're there, when you're standing on that woodpile, when they've chained you to the stake, would you do something to let us know that God's grace is sufficient even when your body is being burned and you're in unbearable pain? So they agreed that he would raise his hand if during that time he felt the grace of God. So the day finally came. He was chained to the stake. He said a brief prayer, and then the fire was lit. It began to burn. It burned hotter. It burned more violently. People began to back away from the flames. They were so hot. The fire worked its way up his body. He began to turn black. His body began to shrivel. His fingers were gone. Everyone thought he had died until he raised one hand up in the air. Then he raised his second hand up in the air, and he clapped three times while the flames worked up his body, and then he gave up his spirit. Flames of life are going to come, but you can have the grace you need to get through it. Please pray with me. God, you are mighty. You are all-knowing, and you are all-powerful. And Lord, we need more of you. God, we need your grace. We need your mercy so we can have an enduring faith. So Lord, when the flames come, no matter what that might look like, God, we will endure with a solid belief in you. God, it is our desire to be a church of high impact here in this area at this time. And God, give us an enduring faith so that no matter what comes our way, death, economic problems, temptations, Lord, of all sorts, we will hold fast to our confession of Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.